Some of you may recognize that piece of music, but I suspect if you're from the UK, America, or Western Europe, you probably do not. And perhaps understandably so, because it comes from a small country in what is technically Central Europe. I mean, we can't be expected to know everything about every country in Europe, right? We certainly don't have the time or resources to learn about them in school. We have to focus on our direct neighbors in the countries that have the most power and influence on our economies and cultures. So it's little wonder you probably didn't recognize Lithuania's national anthem, and little wonder still that you probably think of it as an Eastern rather than Central European nation. In fact, I'd go as far as to hazard a guess: you know nothing or next to nothing about Lithuania, of its history, both recent and ancient, its culture or its politics. And I won't judge you for that, and neither will most Lithuanians. They are, in my experience, mostly hyper aware of their status and how much real estate they occupy within the minds of most people from the so-called major European countries. Well, right now I call Lithuania home. I've lived here on and off for over three years in total, and it's currently where I'm staying. So I had an idea. I'm going to do a series of podcasts on this little known about. Yet fascinating country that I love and hold dear for a multitude of reasons. The main goal is to educate you, the listener, on its deeply troubled yet absolutely fascinating history, and then to go into some more interesting contemporary topics such as culture and politics, and particularly its wonderful burgeoning art scene, which is certainly on the up and up. But for the first podcast in my Lithuania series, I will be going further back, way further, in fact. To the end of the 14th and the beginning of the 15th century, to a defining moment in the history of this great country, and to a medieval tale of high drama, of cunning, romance, and the birth of a once great and powerful nation, and of course of battle. To be more specific, the Battle of Grunwald. So now, on with the podcast. So let's introduce our main protagonist, Vitautas Didesis, or in English Vitautas the Great, was born in 1350 in Thrakai Castle in the southeast of Lithuania. He was the son of Kestutis and Berute. Kestutis was the Duke of Thrakai and governor of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania was a duchy that consisted of most of what we now call the Baltic states, plus some other nearby regions. So we're talking about Latvia, Lithuania, then Belarus, and even some of northeast Poland. Kastutis's life certainly warrants its own podcast, so maybe we can return to him in the future. But for now, let's just note some key points. Foremost is that he was joint ruler of the duchy along with his brother Algidas. They formed a diarchy with Algidas ruling the east and Kastutis the west, and therefore being responsible. For defending the western border against the duchy's most hostile and formidable foe, the Teutonic Order. More of them shortly. In 1377, Algidas died and was succeeded by his ambitious son and the second most important player in this story, Jogaila. And thus, a power struggle commenced between the two men: Kastutis to the west and Jogaila to the east. 
So now a little about the Teutonic Order. Some of you may have heard the name before as they play a huge role in this period of European history, perhaps most notably for their involvement in the Crusades and the Christianization of Europe, the latter being the main reason they were at war with the Grand Duchy. Although the Grand Duchy had been baptised a century or so before these events, they had rejected and renounced Christianity in favour of their ancient and deeply entrenched polytheistic belief system and were thus seen as heathens and blasphemers, an embarrassment to her Polish and German neighbours to the west, and the sooner the duchy could be brought back into the Christian fold, the better. The Order of the Teutonic Knights took it upon themselves to be the ones to carry out this most holy of missions, and hey, if they conquered some new lands and made a little money along the way, it was all with the grace of God. Anyway, who were they? The Teutonic Order was formed in 1192 in Acre during the Third Crusade, by a bunch of German crusaders. The exact reason for their formation is relatively unclear, but it is understood mainly to be to facilitate and aid pilgrims in their perilous journey uh, from Europe to the Holy Land, particularly whilst crossing the dangerous pagan Baltic states, and also once they had actually entered the Holy Land, where they would frequently come under attack. Another role they had was to build and establish hospitals, which was still a fairly fresh concept at the time. At their inception, they were mostly a mercenary force, but a century or so later, they are a well-oiled force of German knights and soldiers who saw it as their God-given mission to Christianize Europe and reclaim the Holy Land at any cost. So yeah, enough about those guys. Let's get back to our protagonists, Vitotus and Jogaila. And also, let's skip forward a bit. And just briefly summarise the years we're skipping over. Suffice to say they weren't lacking in action. Well, maybe not entirely sufficed. So let's get a little detail at least. Kestutis had found out that Ugaila had signed a secret treaty with the Teutonic Order, promising he would lead a civil war against Kestutis that would ultimately lead to the re-Christianisation of Lithuania. Needless to say, Kestutis wasn't a happy bunny. So he seized Velenus and imprisoned Ugaila. The imprisonment didn't turn out too well though, and shortly after Ugaila had managed to escape. And not long after that, he had raised an army and returned to defeat Kestutis once and for all. The two opposing armies had lined up, but for one reason or another, the horns never sounded and the armies never engaged. Kestutis and his son, the young Vitutus, still yet to be imbued with greatness, were however arrested and spirited away to the castle of Kreva where shortly after, Kestutis met his demise. The cause of which may seem obvious, though it's still a topic of hot debate among historians. If you ask me though, he has to have been murdered, right? If it looks like a wolf, sounds like a wolf, smells like a wolf, it's probably a wolf and you should grab your belongings and run like your life depends on it. Because it does, there's a wolf chasing you. Sadly for Vetusus though, his father didn't see, hear or smell the wolf and he died, or rather was killed. Oh, okay. You're asking why the hell I'm talking about wolves. My answer is I don't know. Stop being so critical. I'm a composer, not a historian, okay? Give me a break. I'm trying my best. So anyway, after that whole kerfuffle, Vitatus managed to escape the clutches of his cousin and now sole ruler of the Grand Duchy, Jogaila, and made for the relative safety of the Teutonic Order to the West. There he was taken in and baptised and the order at that time was still trying to work out the duchy's Christianization with diplomacy, negotiating back and forth with Ugaila, and eventually reaching an agreement, 
which of course was never ratified and some years later they were at war again. Now, the next period we'll cover is where we can really start to get a sense of who Vitotus really was. The events that took place after Vitotus's baptism and allegiance with the Teutonic Order are truly revealing. I'm going to read a short excerpt from his wiki page about this period of his life and then we can think about it together. Now, I know I'm only quoting a wiki editor here, but whatever, here goes. Quote, In summer 1383, the war between Ugaila and the Order resumed. Vitotus was baptised as a Catholic, receiving the name Wigand, in Lithuanian Vigandus. Vitotus participated in several raids against Ugaila. In January 1384, Vitotus promised to cede part of Samogotia to the Teutonic Order, up to the Nevergis River, in return for recognition as Grand Duke of Lithuania. However, in July of the same year, Vitotus broke with the order and reconciled with Jogaila. He then burned three important Teutonic castles and regained all Kestutis's lands except for Trakai. So, what can we garner about the man from this? Well, he was surely slippery, right? Some may even say treacherous. But I wouldn't. Let's look at it more closely. So here he was, captured and held hostage by his cousin, who had probably just murdered his dad, somehow managing to escape, then fleeing into the waiting arms of his and his cousin's enemies, then buttering them up, letting them baptise him, promising them everything they wanted to hear, but as soon as he was able, going back and making up with his cousin, betraying the Christians he had so recently sworn loyalty to and promptly beginning to burn their strongholds and regain the lands of his father. So really, what kind of man are we dealing with here? What kind of man could do those kind of things? I don't know about you, but these actions speak to me of a great man, a man of substance, a man of intelligence, cunning, will and even loyalty. I believe that within him must have burned a fierce loyalty to his people and their way of life, to his family and to the lands he called home. Yes, he needed to compromise his morals, to give his cousin time to cool down after the power struggle he had had with Vitus's father. Yes, he needed to seek the aid of his enemies, but desperate times call for desperate measures, right? So again, I ask you, what does this really say about our protagonist? Well, to me at least, it speaks of a man with a clear sense of purpose, of destiny, who was willing to do whatever it takes and use every tool available to him to achieve his goals. And, as you will soon learn, this extended throughout this man's life. They don't call him Vitotus the Great for no reason. He earned that title. So now, let's cover a few more key events in Vitotus's life. After reconciling with his cousin Jogaila, Vitotus established himself as a very popular nobleman in the Grand Duchy. Ugaila had returned to Poland after ratifying the Union of Krewo, a pact that saw him baptised in order that he may marry the very young Polish queen and be coronated King Vladislav II Ugaila of Poland. Sorry about my pronunciation there. This arrangement meant that Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, at least in a sense, had become unified. After all, Jogaila was a Lithuanian and had now become King of Poland. During this period, Vitatus was at Jogaila's side and had even been rebaptized himself. 
though it should already be quite clear at this point that he didn't take baptism all that seriously. Anyway, some time after all this, with Vitotis back in Lithuania and Jogailo off in Poland somewhere doing kingly things, his long-term plans really started to come into focus. Jogailo had appointed his brother, Skirgailo, as regent in Lithuania. He wasn't so popular with the people though, so when Vitotis decided it should be him to take this role, he could count on almost unanimous support of his people, and thus he led an army to take back Vilnius. That didn't work out quite so well though, and he failed. His forces were fought back. A year or so after this attack though, having again lost the favour of his now extremely powerful cousin, Vitotus again felt it beneficial to ally himself with the Teutonic Order. And, in a particularly astute political move, he married off his daughter to none less than the Grand Prince of Russia, thus gaining even more support, influence and a whole ton of credibility in the eyes of both Polish and Lithuanian nobles. He had, of course, again made promises to the Order about lands, etc. And with his newfound political and military strength, invaded Lithuania once more, this time successfully. My guess is then that Jugaila must have seen it as mutually beneficial to end all this mess and just let Vitotus become regent. And as compensation, Skirgaila was given other lands. So again, if you can straighten this all out in your head, you should have started to get a picture of the kind of man we're dealing with here. What's the superlative of cunning? Most cunning? Cunningist? Either way, Vitotus had certainly demonstrated he was not a man to be trifled with. Not only had he successfully navigated an extremely perilous time in his life, but had somehow taken the position of regent of the Grand Duchy, and double-crossed the Teutonic Order again too, and once he was instated as ruler, had promptly torched another three of their castles in the region to the ground. So, Vitatus had become ruler of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and what does a smart person do in this potentially volatile position? They begin to consolidate their power. And how do they go about this? Well, Getting rid of anyone who might oppose you is not a bad place to start, and that is exactly what Vitotus did. He banished any and all rebellious or unwanted nobles, and began to wage war against his enemies. At first it wasn't the order that caught his attention though, but rather the Mongol hordes to the east. So Vitotus led a force of Lithuanian, Polish, and even Teutonic knights and troops eastward to conquer the Mongol lands that lay on the edge of the Russian steppe. He was routed though, and had to return home bloody-nosed. Not a man to be held down for long though, he had quickly re-strengthened and with the aid of his cousin Yugaila, turned his attentions back to the west, with a mind to dealing with the threat of the Teutonic Order once and for all. So this is where we come to the focal point of our story, the Battle of Grunwald. During the years we just talked about, the Teutonic Order had gradually been expanding out eastward from Germany and into the Baltic region. For some simple reasons your narrator has already mentioned, such as religion and sovereignty, but also for a plethora of more subtle and complex ones that your narrator has neither the time nor the expertise to decipher, the Polish-Lithuanian alliance deemed it necessary to vanquish the Germanic order from their lands. So Vitatus and Jugaila decided to lead the biggest armies they could muster against the order in northeast Poland, where the vast majority of their eastern forces were garrisoned in their capital, Marienburg. Numbers vary wildly as they always do with this period in history, And although some estimates do go as high as 163,000 men for the Polish-Lithuanians and 86,000 for the order, the majority of estimates I found range somewhere between 35 to 45,000 for the Lithuanian side. 
which is still an exceptionally large force for this period in Europe, and between 25 and 30,000 for the Teutonic Order. The Order, however, were very confident in their chances. They may have been outnumbered, but they were the superior force. They were more well-disciplined, more experienced, with superior training and certainly superior weaponry at their disposal, especially their infamous armoured cavalry, which were feared throughout Europe and the Holy Land. Anyway, so our protagonists, the cousins Vitotus and Jugaila, led their large force across Poland, and one fine sunny morning, the opposing armies lined up against one another. The battle took place close to the Teutonic Order's capital of Marienburg, between the villages of Grunwald and Tannenberg. Now here's where it gets very interesting. The main events of the battle are undisputed historical fact, but the reasons behind various actions are up for debate. Now please, I ask you to bear in mind again that I'm not a historian or an expert. I may be missing some facts, my research is fairly limited, so please if this subject interests you, do your own research into it. But just as a heads up, I will sometimes be using my own common sense and intuition to decide what led the respective generals to make the decisions that decided the outcome of this battle, because I find, personally, that aspect of medieval warfare fascinating. Now you should see what I mean right away. So, here we are. It's a hot summer morning, and we have these two great forces lined up in their battle formations facing each other across a great plain. And what happens next? An all-out attack, maybe? It certainly would have done the heavily armoured Teutonic Knights no favour to be spending a long time in the baking heat. So what do the generals decide? Well, for some inexplicable reason, the attack horns don't sound, and instead the order procrastinates and a standoff ensues. Vitatus and Jugaila must have been looking on and thinking, well sure, even our heaviest knights are in light armour, so if they want to stall, let them bake in this sun, we shall see who benefits. The most likely reason for the order's hesitation is that they didn't want to break their lines. They wanted to goad the opposing force into a rash attack that could be picked off easily and strategically, with as few losses as possible. But it could also have been their eagerness to fire their new powerful weapon at the Polish-Lithuanians, a pair of bombards, which were a primitive kind of siege cannon. And actually they did manage to do that, but to little or no effect. Well, it did have one clear effect and that was to weaken their own strongest asset, the armoured cavalry, who had now been baking in the sun all morning whilst waiting for the attack that seemingly would never come. It had now reached early afternoon, and the order, despite their best efforts, had not managed to provoke Vitatus and Jugaila into attacking. There is even a story that the German Grand Master had sent the men a pair of swords with a message telling them they might be useful if they ever found themselves in battle. The cousins stayed stoic all morning though, and well into the early afternoon, and I have no doubt who the one keeping their cool was under such provocation. Eventually though, of course, the fighting began, and Vitatus had led his light cavalry, positioned on his right flank, against the Teutonic left flank. Now here again is where we really see how cunning a strategist Vitatus was. Remember he had not so long ago led his army against the Mongols in the east, and during this battle, the Mongols had performed one of their signature moves, a false retreat. A small group of cavalry would form up and lead a reckless attack into a usually much larger and at least on paper superior force. Obviously they would lose some men, then feign a disorganised retreat, 
And as you may know, most casualties, even in more contemporary warfare, happen during retreats. When the enemy has his back to you and is running for his life, he is easy to pick off. But the Mongols were smart enough to use this knowledge to their advantage. And having feigned this ill-disciplined retreat, would have large wedge cavalry formations prepared in ambush, that when their pursuers had strayed just far enough from the bulk of their army, would appear and annihilate them like so much heavy rocks through wet tissue paper. They would then rinse and repeat, or sometimes the wedge formations that had laid in waiting would continue their charge on into the main force of the opposing army, which would now have an exposed flank or an exposed rear. So yeah, this is exactly what happened to Vetatus when he faced the Mongols, and this is exactly the tactic he would use against the unsuspecting Germans. On he went, into the German left flank, losing many men and quickly sounding a retreat. Away he would ride, some of the order's left flank in pursuit, and just at the right moment, pa pa, the sound of the horn would ring out its signal, and his seemingly unorganized light cavalry would swoop back around into formations once again and rout the baffled Germans. This tactic had never been seen before in European warfare, and was completely unheard of save for men like Vetatus who had had first-hand experience of the highly effective Mongol methods. And so, a small reversal was made, and the Germans' left Frank and rear was left primed for a surprise counter. As all this was happening, Ugaila was fighting the main part of the battle on his enemy's right flank. He wasn't doing too well though, and was nearly killed or captured. Things took an especially troubling turn, when the right flank was reinforced by those from the left that believed they had just won a crushing victory over Vetatus. Now here we get the real heroic stuff. Just when all seemed lost, and Ugaila found himself in his gravest moment of need, Vetatus came crushing through the enemy's rear and wedge formations, his extremely mobile, light cavalry carving apart the now exhausted heavy armoured elite of the order. The battle had turned, and Polish-Lithuanian dominance was solidified when the Grand Master of the Order received a lance through the throat. Some have even said it may have been Vitotus himself that dealt the blow, but I wouldn't dare speculate. And so, with their general dead and their famous elite heavy cavalry decimated, the Germans made a fighting retreat back to camp. Those that made it as far as the outskirts attempted to form a defensive line behind a bunch of wagons and carriages. It didn't hold up though, and by the end of the day, those that hadn't fled entirely were either killed or captured. Estimates of the total dead, again, of course, vary wildly, but it's safe to say that the Polish-Lithuanians, while certainly not without heavy losses, had triumphed resoundingly. Conversely, the Teutonic Order had been decimated. Many of its highest-ranking officials, the Grand Master, the Grand Marshal, the Grand Commander, the Grand Treasurer, the Marshal of Supply Forces and ten more military commanders were all killed in battle and another handful were executed shortly after. This was a resounding victory and a crushing defeat for the once powerful Teutonic Order and one that they would never recover from. Vitotus had executed a battle plan so bold, so unexpected, so cunning that his acts would stamp his name into the psyche of the Lithuanian conscious for the coming millennia. He was and still is a symbol of national greatness that all Lithuanians can admire and feel proud of. So, to conclude, this great victory marked the decline of German power in the region and the beginning of a period where the Polish-Lithuanian alliance would see the Grand Duchy of Lithuania become one of the most powerful nations in Europe. 
more about that in future podcasts. So I hope you enjoyed this short, mostly historically accurate tale. And I hope it has inspired you to read at least a little more about Lithuanian history. Drive safe. See you next time. Hopefully it won't take me half a year to release the next podcast, but no promises. Thank you.